Repeat, do not let him in! Piece of cake. Hey, you want to be a farmer? Here's a couple of acres. Decker, the next one I'll hurt. Hello and welcome back to Best Forgotten Movies, the podcast show in which we give a second chance to the films that time forgot. I'm your co-host Gareth Green and joining me as always is my full-time co-host and part-time registered cinephile, Andrew Phillips. <laughs> I love movies. And for this week's episode, we flex our analytical muscles over the Arnold Schwarzenegger starring action film satire, Last Action Hero. But does this John McTiernan film survive the bullet storm? Or is the last action hero just a hero too many? Find out after the trailer. Come on, I'm right here, do it! A great classic comes to the screen. Take thy hand, fair prince. Who said I'm fair? Be or not to be. Not to be. Columbia Pictures is proud to present the screen's greatest action hero, Jack Slater. Slater! Don't even think it, Slater, you hear me? This is the Lieutenant Governor. Slater, here's what I need. The Governor gets here, call me. And Danny Madigan is his biggest fan. <laughs> Jack Slater. But tonight, a magic ticket, it's a passport to another world, will get Danny closer to the action than anyone ever dreamed. Holy cow, I'm in the movie! Who the hell are you? Don't show me, I'm Danny Madigan, I'm a kid. And you're going with him. Who is this twerk? And where is that smile on his face? I don't even know this kid. To a world that's bigger than life. This ticket is magic, and it really works. And better than real. You really believe that you're inside a movie, don't you? Yes! The bad guys are in there. I've seen it. On screen. Could I speak to the drug dealer of the house, please? Have a nice day. Have him killed. This summer, it's head-on thrills. I have killed people smarter and younger than you. Head-first excitement. I hate when it happens. He's got the ticket! Now I possess power. Real power. He's going over to my world! In this world, the bad guys can win! The door must still be open, come on! If I go, how do I get back? And it's coming at you from both sides of the screen. Where am I now? This isn't the movies anymore, Jack. Please be careful, things were different here. Damn it, that hurt! Arnold Schwarzenegger is Jack Slater. Wow! This hero stuff has its limits. And Jack Slater is... Everybody down! The Last Action Hero. The big ticket for 93. 
I'll be back. Ha! You did not gonna say that, did you? That's what you always say. I do? Get your impressions at the ready as action star Arnold Schwarzenegger is having a midlife crisis in John McTernan's Last Action Hero. Like most family-friendly romps, Last Action Hero begins with our plucky teenage protagonist, Danny Madigan, being urged to stab a man to death in a dirty bathroom. This is a kid's film, right? Yes, our focus group says yes. Oh, okay. When Danny comes into possession of a magic cinema ticket, he escapes urban murder town to join his hero Jack Slater on the big screen in his latest action adventure. So why have we nominated Last Action Hero for consideration on Best Forgotten Movies? I'm going to hand it over to Andy to tell us a little bit about why. It's fucking weird. It is a strange film. And deeply troubled. And that goes down to the, the story, the way it was made, yeah. and just everything about it, really. It's just deeply troubling. I just think it leaves a bad taste in the mouth for basically everyone involved. These all sound like comments that have been left on a brony's Tinder profile or something. <laughs> <laughs> But um, it, it is a cult film, but I don't think it's one of those cult films that's like got like any kind of massive fan base. It's a cult film by default, just because it costs so much money that it's yeah. kind of a... And because it, it is kind of unique as well, and it had a really cool poster, mm-hmm. it doesn't get brought up in conversation that much. Yeah. It's a very big forgotten blockbuster film. Yeah, I think you are right in that you don't get many films that are regarded in an occult way that are made for this amount of money. And with this kind of pedigree of action star, I mean, I think you, you get maybe one or two every kind of decade. Yeah. Films that just didn't hit the mark or were just very weird. And this is a very weird film. Mm. It's a very strange film. And we will get into the release of this film and the problems that were faced by the marketing campaign and how this film was received at the time when we start to discuss the stats and facts, which we do at the end of every single episode. But I do think we have to say straight up as well, just this was a film that really ended a golden run for Arnold Schwarzenegger in terms of box office. I mean, yeah. everything that he touched, everything that he graced with his presence was a big moneymaker for a long time. And then Last Action Hero comes along and it heralds the end of an era of filmmaking. Yeah, it's, it's, it's ironic as well because the kind of film and the kind of movie star that it bigs up and basically says, this is big action movies this is the end. Mm-hmm. Like, this yeah. is the, the nail in the coffin for that kind of star in an A-list film. Because mm-hmm. they kind of continued on in B-movies like ever since. But that kind of star in an A-list film, and that kind of film, in a way, Last Action Heroes, the last great 80s action film uh, that never was. Sort yeah, of thing. yeah. So I just find it ironic in a way that that whole lifestyle, and when you get to the whole premiere thing at the end, that all goes yeah as soon as this film comes out basically <laughs> so it's kind of hankering after a world that's not there anymore yeah yeah way. it's already starting to change these objects are further away than they appear yeah yeah <laughs> and, and you see that as well i mean even just going back to like my memories from that time i mean i remember watching a couple of months ago the the opening ceremony for the uh like the opening of i don't know mgm studios and you get all these movie stars and you can just pinpoint which ones have lasted and which ones have yeah. faded in the ether and they're all of a particular time and i get the same thing from that premiere yeah in this film as well it's like oh yeah he's not there anymore he's his career just took a nosedive it's very much of its time because of that as well it's, it's kind of it doesn't transcend its period it's it kind of becomes very dated yeah in that sense so yeah i think that's also why maybe it's not as beloved 
as maybe a lot of other cult films which mm-hmm. do transcend the time that they were made. Yeah, and we have been trying to get around to actually covering this film for quite a while. It's been on the schedule pretty much all year and has been moved back for yeah, one yeah. reason or another. And finally, we're actually getting around to it. And I think it's a good film to actually cover on the podcast as well because although it isn't really talked about much anymore, there have been a couple of great articles that have delved into the history of Last Action Hero. It does have, very strangely enough, a very um, defensive and vocal fan base or cult following online. Yeah. Um, I remember looking over the IMDb page for the film as well and having a look at the board. And there are a couple of like real 80s action film heads that are very defensive about this film. I think it's because it really takes on and tries to embody everything that works about those 80s action films and that era of action filmmaking. But actually, it comes to represent many of the reasons why that era is over and why it was eventually left behind. Yeah, it's kind of a strange film in in terms of how it ended up being made because it was meant as a love letter to those films, but then ended up being made by the people who made those films. (laughs) When that happens, sort of reality collapses in on itself yeah, a little yeah. bit. And I think, for me personally, I think the concept of it is genuinely great. I think it's a really good concept. I think it's golden, there's, yeah. There's many things that happen that, in a way, and, and I kind of, I do understand why these fans defend it, but I would have to say that the film doesn't embrace those things enough the whole no. concept message of the film gets so watered down that mm-hmm. it's neither one thing or the other yeah and it just becomes that real gray area in between well before we get into that i mean i want to ask as well is this the first time that you've ever you know watched last action hero is it for this podcast or do you have any previous history with the film uh no i've seen it before i can't remember exactly when i did see it originally mm-hmm. must have been Ooh, probably about 15 years ago, I think, when I watched it all the way through. I had seen clips and bits and pieces beforehand, but yeah, in terms of actually sitting down and, and watching it, I think it was on telly once, I think. I did enjoy it, it's one, but I, even then I knew it was kind of a bit of a, a hodgepodge of, of yeah. many things, and um, you could kind of see why it wasn't embraced, because it's kind of just all over the place. Yeah. I did see this very early. Um, I didn't go to the cinema to see it because I wasn't old enough, yeah. obviously. That's another problem, isn't yeah. it, really? So I didn't see it at the cinema, but my mum was a big Arnold Schwarzenegger, Sylvester Stallone action fan. So I did get to see all those type of films from mm. a very early age. I'd seen like Predator and The Terminator, Terminator 2 and stuff like that, all around being the ages between 5 and 10. And Last Action Hero I did see quite young, and I had it on VHS for a very long time. And even now, I still remember from this film in particular that I didn't like the beginning, I didn't like the ending, but I loved everything in between. The moment Danny gets into that film, as a child, I was down for what Last Action Hero represented. Yeah, it was yeah. like a you know living the fantasy that every kid of my age, every action hero not really wanted to live, but either side of that. Like, even from that young age, I could tell that something had gone wrong, you know? But yeah, it was still a film that I very much enjoyed. And I didn't actually come to know that it had such a poisonous reception until much later on. Yeah, and and poisonous making. Yeah, and the older that I've got, the more that I've come to view the flaws in the film. And the more that I've come to realise just why it didn't land with its intended audience. And yeah, I think uh, you you mentioned earlier, it is a close but no cigar film. And... uh, Boy, does Arnold Schwarzenegger like his cigars? <laughs> the pig-hearted gent that he is. Yeah, and trailers. Sorry, uh, my wife just texted me to tell me that 
another year of Empire magazine is coming my way. <laughs> Every year for my birthday, she renews my subscription to Empire magazine. Oh, really? Lovely. Which is rather fitting, considering that we are going to be cribbing a lot of our information <laughs> from Empire as we delve into the uh, the context, the history of yeah. Last Action Hero. Although we did ask first. Yes, we did. We have asked the writer of the article, The Life and Death of the Last Action Hero by Nick DeSemlian. I think it's Semlian. 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 Diction, darling. Semlian. <laughs> um, uh, we did ask him beforehand if we could use a few quotes from his article, a few excerpts, as we delve into the history of this film. Because it is a fantastic article. And I do recommend all our listeners to actually seek it out and read it. Like Again, again, it's called Life and Death of the Last Action Hero. To be honest, if you just Google Last Action Hero, it's on the very first page. It is. I remember reading this article long before I ever had to for, for this podcast. I remember sitting in a hospital waiting room reading this article. It was absolutely great. I went home and watched the film again as well just to refresh myself with all that he was talking about. So where to begin with Last Action Hero? I think we have to start with the original writers of the film, who are Zach Penn and Adam Leff. Now, I don't know too much about the career of Adam Leff since this film, but I know that Zach Penn has worked on a good few uh, superhero films, not many of them successful. <laughs> but I know that he's billed himself as being a structure guy, not a little detail guy. But yeah, so they were students at university and originally wrote the first draft of Last Action Hero. And they were inspired, actually, by The Simpsons, who had their own parody of the uh, action genre with McBain. Played by Rainer Wolfcastle. <laughs> and they wanted to do what The Simpsons did with genre in terms of its genre bending and... It kind of like broke through genre barriers whilst also embracing those genres. Mm. Um, and it, they wanted to do what The Simpsons was doing with that, but in live action. Yeah. And with the action genre specifically. And so Last Action Hero was kind of born with them, but under the title Extremely Violent. <laughs> and you have actually read some of the script this morning. Yeah, I did. The main thing that they do is the majority of the action in Extremely Violent is purely in film form. It's purely within the film world. So the real world only comes into play the beginning and the end, and the vast majority, about 85 to 90% of the film, is in the film world, and it's it's all about Danny and uh, Arno, which is the character they change later to Jack. Yeah, uh, it's Arno Slater, wasn't it? Arno Slater, yeah, which is a like a parody of Arnold Schwarzenegger. Never in their minds they would think they'd actually get Arnold Schwarzenegger to be in the film. So it's, that's the reason why it's yeah. called Arno. So it's like a little a nod and a wink gesture. But yeah, it takes place entirely in the film world and it's literally about Danny using his knowledge of these action movie film cliches to foil the bad guy's plot by just saying that's a cliche we shouldn't do this yeah but at the same time it's kind of its own romp Mm -hmm. there are a couple of similarities to the final version the most obvious one is the hamlet scene Mm -hmm. every single beat of it is basically exactly the same it's one Mm -hmm. of the only things that's really survived yeah from and obviously the fact the actual character of danny who is written as an older person in this it's a, a 15 year old which i think would have been maybe slightly better uh, than having someone who was probably about 12, 13. You needed to be slightly older, I think. Mm-hmm. Because the problem with the film at the moment, it's like, who's it for? Like, the way that they skewed it, it's kind of like Spielbergian at one end, and then it's like Lethal Weapon at the other end. It's like, Ugh. yeah. And then you got everything else in between. 
But on a writing point of view, you can tell that it's written by people who haven't written a script before because it's not very disciplined and the way that they write things, you can tell they've not read any books on screenwriting or anything like that. It's, there's like description galore and the way that they, you know, zoom in here and stuff like that. And like, it's very specific about stuff, which yeah. when you're reading in a, a normal film script, it's not so specific. Yeah. in terms of we need to pan right here and stuff like that. Well, that so, was actually a problem that Shane Black had with the script. Because yeah. when the script's Extremely Violent was eventually bought up, well, I say eventually, it was kind of snapped up straight away after yeah, a, bidding a bidding war. war yeah. And um, Columbia Pictures, who were then owned by Sony at the time, won the bid for like the film, and uh, they bought it for, I think, $350,000, yeah. yeah. which was just insane to the two writers that were making it. And... Um, well, instantly they were fired. S- small change. <laughs> instantly they were fired and a more safer hand in the studio's eyes was brought on board. And that was Shane Black, who was the kind of Hollywood darling at the time, especially when it came to the action genre. He was selling million dollar scripts like they were nothing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think at the time as well, he had sold like a script for the most amount of money than any that anybody had before with The Long Kiss Goodnight. Was that before this? Or was, was that, that after? Oh, Long Kiss Goodnight was '96, but was when was I don't, the sale? I don't, I don't know if it was before or after, but I mean, it would be around goes, this time. Yeah, it? it would. Have, it just goes to show just kind of what a name Shane Black yeah. was at the time. The early '90s were like that period of the blockbuster writer where they get paid a lot of money. Yeah. For, uh, yeah, like you say, like when we get a bit further into it, some of these other writers that got involved in this film got paid an awful lot of money for very little work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, um, he was brought on board, and one of the things that he didn't like about the original script, Extremely Violent, was that he said that you could tell that it was made by people that hadn't wrote a script before, and he thought it was more of a collection of scenes with mm. not enough connection between them. Mm. And he said it was a bit random, and uh, he kind of had to make sense of that. And he mentions that you could see what it could become, mm. but it just needed refining. And so that's- there, there are some good things. I mean, even just flicking through, I mean, there's there's no like Mr. Benedict or Vivaldi or anything in that. There's, so the, the, the main villains in the original draft are two guys called Jules and Jim. It's like a little nod to Truffaut, I think. There. Yeah. And they're these Belgian villains and the, the, this running joke that people think they're French and they're like, no, we're Belgians. <laughs> Stuff like that. So that's kind of fun. And it's kind of a shame that maybe some of that didn't yeah. come through. Because I think, I mean, the, the idea of like, say, European villains definitely still yeah. goes through. But yeah, it's kind of, for better or worse, sort of altered, really. Yeah. When we go into it, you'll find that a lot of the different things are from different places and mm-hmm. from different writers, and which is why it's such a hodgepodge. Yeah. Somebody else that was vocally critical of the script as well in that whole group of people was Arnold Schwarzenegger, but mm. he was still someone that was very interested in making the film, but he wanted to make it a more family-friendly, orientated action film. Yeah. That was the place from which the rewrites really came from, because I think at the, at the time, it came down between Arnold Schwarzenegger making two films, one of which was called Sweet Tooth, yeah, and was about Arnold Schwarzenegger playing the Tooth Fairy, yeah. and the other one was Last Action Hero. I'm pretty sure that film got eventually made, made in some form. Dwayne with, The Rock yeah. Johnson, yeah. It kind of seems like it must have been that kind of concept, if not exactly the same yeah, concept it's been in development hell it's clearly one of those films that a producer has kept hold of all those years and maybe every couple of years says this is the film i want to make this is my this will be funny yeah (laughs) big muscly man plays tooth fairy i've had it since the 80s no no i bet bet (laughs) you that's the concept of the film it's just written on a napkin 
big muscle man is the tooth fairy. Yeah. There's no story. It's just that's yeah. the concept. We want to make that concept that's on your neck. And a crude drawing of a muscle-bound yeah. man with just like two tiny wings. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so when we start to actually see the type of names that were associating themselves with Last Action Hero, we already get an idea of what actually started to go wrong with this film. Mm. Because so far it's based on an original script by two writers that are fresh out of university that have something to say about a genre that they love that they're toying about with in a kind of rebellious but fun manner. And then, actually, as we start to go along the process, Arnold Schwarzenegger attaches himself to the project, Shane Black comes on board to rewrite it, and then eventually John McTiernan signs on to direct the film. Mm -hmm. And we realise that, actually, these are all the types of writers, filmmakers, actors that extremely violent the original script mm. was sending up so are, are these the people that should be making it are these people <laughs> going to have that kind of outside of the picture look you know or are they too inside the genre to be able to do something like yeah. this yeah and i do think shane black is definitely capable of writing this type of film but i do think it needed that kind of out- outside of viewpoint mm. like say john McTernan signed on to direct but zach penn had other ideas there were other um, directors that he wanted involved in the projects he saw it as being more of a john landis slash robert zemeckis type film yeah and yeah. um i can see that i mm. can see that and you actually mentioned a name that would have been really suited to this. yeah like joe dante yeah it would have been well. great i could see that or someone new entirely but you just needed somebody who wasn't so involved in those films that they yeah. were paying homage slash lampooning really because yeah people are just too close to it and then again and this is the other thing it becomes the thing that it's parodying too much yeah, you know what it reminds me of, in a way? And and this is the worst scene in that film as well. But it reminds me of the opening to 1941 by Steven yeah. Spielberg, which is a complete parody of Jaws. Yeah. It's like somebody took that, and because they've involved all these filmmakers that have ties to the action genre, it's like somebody took that opening and just spread it over an entire film. <laughs> you know, made an entire film of that kind of parody. Yeah. So we get people parodying their own work nodding at their own work and it becomes a little bit too like they're shaking their own hands almost Mm. (laughs) at times and i think often they lose sight of that but yeah anyway moving on so john mcturnan actually um got involved but already the the writing process was completely out of whack by this point shane black had had a falling out with john mcturnan and the producers over the writing of the film and he and his co-writer were fired which i think upped the uh, the number of fired writers now to four mm-hmm. and a series of script doctors were brought on board and i do have a quote as well from this article from shane black in regards to the script doctors that were brought on board to rewrite the film and just going through it says uh, tensions rose between all parties nobody was happy with the direction the film was heading or where it was currently at The previous writers were then fired, including Shane Black, and William Goldman was hired to make sense of it all. He was paid $1 million for four weeks' writing work. (laughs) Uh, Black says, Back in those days, that kind of thing was an insurance policy for keeping your job at an executive level. (laughs) A script would be questionable, and the trembling executive would give it to a famous writer with a million bucks so he could say, Yeah, it's fortified now. We've given it vitamins. Wait, wait, wait. It needs a woman's touch. Give it to Carrie Fisher. It just made people breathe a little bit easier, throwing money at this enormous behemoth. 
Even if the movie sucked, now they could say, well, it wasn't my fault. <laughs> it's because they just keep on passing it down from yeah, person to person. Yeah, we paid these guys lots of money. Yeah, so we, we've now had the original two writers, which are, like I said earlier, Zach Penn and Adam Leff. We've had Shane Black and David Arnott. And then we have William Goldman, Carrie Fisher, and is it Larry Ferguson? Larry Ferguson. As well. And, and then there's many, many more. Many more unnamed script doctors. And I, I, you know who I think might be amongst them? I don't know how he was writing at this time, because I know he is a script doctor, but I think this might be just before his time. But it reminds me a little bit of Patton Oswalt as well, because mm. I read his book, Silver Screen Fiend, uh, which is all about, on one level, his relationship with his projectionist at a cinema. And when I was reading the book, I actually thought of this film quite a lot. <laughs> and I was like, maybe, maybe he might, if I could stretch it in my mind, he might have just had a touch of work on this film because it does feel <laughs> like that at times. That relationship is there. But I suppose everybody working in Hollywood does have that kind of relationship. With their projectionist. <laughs> yeah. I imagine many cinephiles do, yeah. to be honest. You know, mm. Like real cinephiles. People that care about... Not anymore. No, no. It's all this like There's no fucking projectionist. No. <laughs> it's no. one person in the room. Yeah, but a computer. Yeah. <laughs> so, like I say, at this point, this film has had all those writers. And it eventually gets the green light from Columbia Pictures in August of 1992. Mm -hmm. So, it gets its green light... It gets its budget, and they also get given nine and a half months to make the film because the release date is, in fact, June 1993. Mm -hmm. So I have a feeling that they've just kind of given up writing it, said, all right, it's been through all these people, so it must be good. <laughs> Look at this two-page list of people that have contributed words to the scripts. It's got to be great. <laughs> and then they give it nine and a half months to be made. I thought it was eight and a half. Or at least it was basically one month short of what they should have had, really. Yeah, that's what McTernan says in his interview in uh, that article. But just going by yeah, the yeah. dates, from the date it was greenlit to the date it was mm. released, they had just over nine and a half months. But I imagine, like I say, you take off three weeks from that as well. To, uh, in, that, in, that, in that period, the film's got to have its prints made and sent out to all mm. the theatres because this isn't a time when you could just download them. Yeah, and pretty much all the time that they had cut out was all in post-production. Yeah, and, and this was a film as well that in this article, they actually talk about it being still filmed three weeks before the film premiered. Yeah. Maybe just a couple of inserts here and there, but they were still filming for it. I think they didn't have to reshoot the ending or something like that. That would make... A little bit more sense. <laughs> yeah, I th I'm sure it's the, the ending that they had to reshoot. Yeah. So going by all this information, you start to get an idea of just where this film started to go wrong. Mm. I mean, we do, we still do get films like this every now and again, where they kind of just rush ahead without a script yeah, and just hope for the best, knowing that the script isn't there and that they'll just figure out as they go along. But even if that's the case, even if you do make one of those type of films and it works, you normally need time on your side to do that. Yeah. Because you need the time to be able to step back and say, okay, this is what this film needs, and then go back at it. They haven't got that time. They've just got to make whatever's there and yeah. put it up. So, I mean, do you have any more background on this film that you think would be worth mentioning before we actually start to discuss our opinions of Last Action Hero? Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, just in terms of like the way that it's been written as well, it's so scattershot, like... I know that the Mr. Benedict character is a, a William Goldman creation. Yeah. And the whole farting body part of the film is, is a Shane Black thing. And yeah, again, the Hamlet thing was is a, was part of the original script. So you can see how it's all been melded together. And there's a lot of things in the film that were changed. I know that the uh, at some point when they were doing in, in the script doctoring phase, 
the projectionist became a lot more friendlier. Many, many set pieces went in and out. Yeah. And also Arnold Schwarzenegger himself had a lot of uh, involvement in things that he wanted and that sort of extended into the shoot itself. Yeah. Like a lot of his friends and things he was trying to shove in there and and things like that. So, yeah, there's there's, there's far too many cooks yeah. that are diluting this vision. As well, like one of the things to mention is that you have these original writers, you fire them, you bring on another set of writers because you don't like the original script that you've just actually bought for $350,000, mm. which doesn't make sense to me to give those writers another chance to, you know, have a go at their mm. own script. So you bring on a safer pair of hands, have them rewrite it for a price, and then John McTiernan signs on to direct. And one of the things I forgot to mention was he actually didn't like the script. And that's part of the reason why Shane Black was eventually fired, because tempers frayed between Shane Black mm. and John McTernan, and because he didn't like the script, but he still signed on to the film. Yeah, it begs the question, why did he even sign on to do the film? Yeah, it begs the question, like, why was the script bought in the first place if too many people at Columbia Pictures didn't like it enough to give the original writers a chance to rewrite it? Mm. And then why have John McTernan sign on, who didn't like the original script in the first place? I have a feeling that this was almost like a studio job for him. I don't know. I think it's one of those things where because people, all these people were very much at the peak of their careers at the time, I think they just thought that anything they took their hand to would work out fine Mm -hmm. in the end. And I think it's just that kind of, I don't know, sort of hubris. And that goes for everybody, the writers, the stars, the directors, and the studio themselves. I think it's just catching all those people at that time, putting them together, and uh, yeah, it just doesn't work mm-hmm. in the end. And then again, it just leads to some of these careers starting to wind down. Yeah. Or at least be temporarily halted. Well, I think it's time for us to actually start to delve into Last Action Hero and start to discuss what we thought about the film and all. Because one of the things I do want to say straight up before I actually uh, start to get critical about this film Mm -hmm. is that it is a film that essentially doesn't work but it is also a film that i am far more positive about as an experience oh yeah like uh, i do quite like this film despite its flaws i get what it's trying to be and more often than not it kind of works for me but when it doesn't work it fails really hard yeah it really it does have its moments but yeah it doesn't add up yeah like the small parts are really nice but then it doesn't add up to a satisfying whole yeah and again you're constantly asking yourself who is this for yeah other yeah. than like the hardcore movie fan like general audience speaking who is this been made for yeah i get the point that the reality scenes are supposed to be a harsh juxtaposition to the cinema scenes in the film as well I get that. But I almost feel like they've gone too far in their extremes in that case. Because, like I say, there is a scene very early on in the film where Danny is being goaded into stabbing a thief to death. Yeah. You know? And it's like, they should go either one way or the other. It should either be an ultra-violent action film satire that really plays up the violence in that world, or it should, if they go down the family-friendly route, that's also fine. I can see... A film of this nature being made and being able still be able to embrace the kind of yeah, action yeah. genre in that way. But really, does it? Do we need to see that the world is so bad that death is around every corner, like real death, real horrible, scummy people? You know, it's too far of an extreme, and that's the problem for me. Is like, like you say, you sat there and you're asking, who is this for? I mean, what was the rating for this film at the time? Well, I think it was PG-13 in America, but in Britain it got a 15 rating. Yeah. And this was still really in the days where films in Britain got 12 certificates. I mean, they got you had the odd one, 
but I'm trying to think when the 12 certificate was actually properly started in, in Britain because it was definitely later yes. than um, than America. I remember seeing, um, well, I think it was around during like Last Action Hero because yeah. I remember films like Forrest Gump were 12 and Independence Day were 12. I yeah. Think. I remember going to see Independence Day. Yeah, well, I think Goldeneye was the first 12 film I ever saw. Oh, was it? I never Underage, actually of course. did get to see it, yeah. <laughs> but... Um, yeah, I think it was just around this time, but I kind of feel like this film, for one reason or another, didn't get a 12 rating and just ended up being a 15, which is, it's not really a 15, it's, it does sit in that whole 12 mm-hmm. category, but as we know it now, but not then. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I don't know why they didn't make any cuts to make it like that either as well. Yeah. Unless it was just too many things that were to be, I mean, when you when you, when you start to think about some of the scenes at the beginning and some of the scenes at the end, yeah. then yeah, maybe... That's why they wouldn't budge on the rating. And I also think as well that they've attempted to give Jack Slater too much pathos by opening the film with the death of his son Mm. at the hands of an axe murderer. Mm. And it's like, we don't really get an escape from grim reality in the kind of reality scenes. It's all, like say, very grim, very dirty. But also to start off with our view of this fantasy film world, beginning with the death of our main character's son, Mm. it's also like, when does the fun begin? Yeah, it's totally wrong. And even in, as, a, as a homage thing to the things that they're trying to lampoon, it's, it's wrong as well. Because you need a, a hurrah, yeah. shake your fist in the air moment. And then you need to see the contrast. Whereas this, there's, there's not enough contrast. No. Like you get the larger than life nature of it, of course. But in the crux of the scene, there's no difference. Yeah. And it goes right down to the, the core of the film where you get that whole thing where Benedict goes, yeah, in the real world, the bad guys win. And that doesn't really ring true for the Ripper character because technically he wins yeah. in Jack Slater 3. So it all becomes like muddled, muddled in terms from, of what it's trying from, to from say. From the start, yeah. yeah. Whereas if uh, you had a scene where Jack Slater defeated the Ripper and rescued his boy, yeah. um, and maybe he could have even said that, yeah, this happened in Jack Slater 2, and then, yeah, in Jack Slater 3, this happened. Mm-hmm. came back and took his revenge or something you needed something that would have happened later that maybe involved the same characters but yeah that's the wrong moment for that to happen in the film yeah I, th- I think you're absolutely right they needed to set up something at the beginning of the film like this where jack slater prevails in a very big very over-the-top manner uh, which kind of sets up the film and what it's totally going to be like for mm. the rest of it then if you come into reality at the end of the film, have whatever you use as the opening, have it play out again, but in the real world. Yeah. And the stakes are, it could all go wrong because it's, yeah. it's no longer yeah. in the film. It could go completely different. Yeah. They've missed that opportunity yeah. completely. And also in the way that they portray the, the Jack Slater character, it doesn't feel right that that character would have that kind of torment. Yeah. Because it's never referenced that much mm-hmm. in the rest of the film. Like no. the, the main body of the film where we're saying we're having fun and it just completely ignores that whole mm-hmm. uh, aspect of the previous film as well because it's the previous film. It's not even like the first film that they're referencing. That's almost like how far do you go in terms of giving the filmmakers a due? Because I do agree with you. Jack Slater himself doesn't seem like a tormented character apart from the odd scene that they give him to make a pointed response or reminisce very Mm. pointedly at times looking at a picture or something like that like those are the only times in which we ever do get a reference to his torment Mm. 
Now, do we say that this is the filmmakers commenting on the genre, saying this is how it is, you know, in mm. these action films? They're not tormented for yeah, the most they move on. So they, they move on yeah. apart from the moments that the it's written in for them to reminisce. Or do we say that this has actually been something that's been overlooked and missed? Because if I do say to the filmmakers, oh, it's, it's a very clever, very smart way of them criticizing the action films, why don't they make any more of it? Mm. Like, why is nothing interesting funny or heartfelt ever made of that yeah and eventually and ultimately comes up to nothing when you get to the climax yeah and that climax is very weak anyway it's mm-hmm. not the climax that a film of this kind should have yeah really it's the complete opposite of the kind of climax mm-hmm. that this film should have and i'd say probably for me personally the, the bits of this film that work the most probably a good hour after the first 20 minutes so as soon as you get those Jack Slater 4 credits rolling up and then basically until they get out back into the real world, yeah. it kind of works. And there are a few fleeting moments as well in the real world during the end of the film, primarily concerning Charles Dance's character, yeah. that still completely work as yeah. well. But then I'd say, yeah, the last 15, 20 minutes just don't work at all. And even from a uh, mise-en-scene kind of level, in terms of that ending as well, that climax of the film, I feel like everybody involved kind of lost sight of the film that they were making because at the end of the film, the lines are blurred between reality and the film world because, I mean, we see in the film world, like there's uh, clever nods and winks at the camera of like Acme signs on all of the uh, products Mm. and all of the... And yet we see that in the real world as well. In the end, on the rooftop, like they, they give it that nod and wink then. It's like... Wait, is this just got meta about being meta? Is this now saying that? Yeah. Is this now aware that we're watching a film? You know, is it aware of us, the audience? Yeah. And I've lost all sense of what's reality and what isn't by that point, in a way. Yeah, and the, the message just gets just too confused by the mm-hmm. end. And there's so many bits and pieces of things that are in there. I mean, they shoot the bad guy and he explodes randomly. <laughs> they shoot him, he blows up. It suddenly becomes, in the real world, it becomes a film. Like it has its big, it, well, it doesn't. It's not big enough, but it has its film ending because the the moments in the real world, bar a couple of things, are so sort of uh, Spielbergian in their nature. Yeah, it sends off the wrong messages as to again who the film's for. Because in those scenes, it feels like yeah, this is a a, a family film. Yeah, because it's 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 screaming family film, especially with all the stuff with the projectionist and all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. But then also your Spielbergian film. Like your kind of Spielbergian world is not that realistic either. So yeah. there's no sharp contrast between the film world and the real world, even at the start, really. Mm-hmm. And even in the color scheme, there's no difference in color schemes or anything. Yeah. So there's not enough clear contrasts in those worlds. No, 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 there isn't. The other thing as well is just the fact there's um, too many characters to focus on. Mm-hmm. And again, that whole thing about the, the, and the kid hero dynamic, I feel because they made him younger, I, I don't, don't feel it works for the kind of film that they want to make. And I'm just getting confused now because it's like, <sighs> it's just me. In the, it's it's an adult film then it's a, then it's a kids film yeah and it's just oh it gives me a headache yeah no I, I i do get yeah i do get where you're coming from totally but i'm getting myself wrapped up in the duality of the film of it like treading this line between being two types of films because i, I and, you, and you do mention something then that um i, I do want to bring attention to as well is that there is a spielbergian element to this film and i think if they were to go down the family friendly route 
they needed to drop it, it being a spoof specifically of action films and make it a spoof of Spielberg action adventure films. Because there's one thing about the action film as well is that they are violent, they are made for adults, they are enjoyed by kids, but to take away the kind of a uh, the silly bloodshed and all that, it dulls the point of what they're spoofing. I think as well. Yeah. To be honest, I feel like that the real problem with the film actually is actually instilled in the original script. Yeah. Because I feel like if you're going to do this film that's of that particular genre and of that type and, and really go all out on it and be that adult film, your Danny really needs to be someone who's 17, 18. Mm-hmm. You need basically that yeah. young adult rather than, say, someone who's 15 or 13. Because at the end of the day, if you're pandering to that audience... If you want that audience to come and see your film that's about this kind of genre and this kind yeah. of filmmaking, would they really want to watch a film that has your main character as a kid? Yeah, our eyes into this world. Yeah, because I just can't see that an 80s action cinema audience would want a kid as their mm-hmm. main character. Yeah. And I feel that's where the problem lies, and they never solve that issue. And again, like you said, if you are going to make it more family-friendly, they needed to pick a slightly different genre or something or just skew it in a slightly different way yeah i still think you could have done it with this genre because at the end of the day you james bond films like your family yeah, friendly yeah that's true and but like, i mean i think if if they went down that route they needed to make it more of a james bond film yeah or something like that him jumping into you know yeah because the jack slater is slightly like that but yeah again it's still got too many feet into the lethal weapon die hard world exactly that, yeah that isn't family friendly Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and, and you can tell as well by the films that they continually um, parody in their kind of cameos as well with the appearance of Sharon Stone reprising her um, basic instinct character for just a single shot yeah. and the T-1000 from Terminator 2 turning up as well just for yeah. walk-on, walk-off cameos. It's like even the films that they're nodding at, they have ratings that prohibit kids from being able to see them. But then you go the other way and you've got Bogart in there somewhere yeah, exactly. and then you've got Whiskers I mean, we need to talk about Whiskers. I, eventually, I will get onto the positives, but yeah. we need to talk about Whiskers because well, I think Whiskers well, represents a lot that is wrong with this film in terms of everybody involved losing focus. I mean, on I mean, I think the whole police, about. I think the whole police station scene is uh, good. And it's, I mean, it's got some good moments in the police station scene, but then yeah, the police station scene actually probably epitomizes what's great and what's not so great about this film mm-hmm. because it's got some really nice moments, and then it also tells you. Well, this film is confused about what it wants to do. Yeah. Because for me, I was really confused as to the rules of this world. Yeah. And it makes great strides to establish these rules because Danny comments on them endlessly about, yeah, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. This guy never gets killed. This, these guys are both going to die. Yeah. And it really has fun with that. And it works for a mm-hmm. time. And then as soon as you get into that police station scene, everything starts to unravel because of who's there. Yeah. I mean, I like the fact that they have the big the fancy looking police station because that's the police station you would never get in real life but then you have all these other characters coming in you like you have these space robot women and yeah you got those cameos of the other yeah. film people and it's like wait a minute this is meant to be just this closed off world and, and you know it what starts it to... absolutely reminds me of and i know that you're definitely going to agree with me mm. but it reminds me of that plug station thing in wreck it ralph yeah that is the police yeah, it station does. yeah yeah it, it feels like a place that exists outside of jack slater the film yeah. where all people from all their different films all the characters kind yeah. of meet up to hang out rather than if we take the wreck it ralph analogy any further rather than its own game or its own film itself 
Well, they do that again, don't they? Because before that, you have the whole thing where they drive off of the set and you're in the backstage area. Yeah. And I like that in of itself, but because it's never used again, Mm -hmm. uh, I I just get so confused as to what it wants to be because I'm thinking, if you're in that world, you're in that world. And then if the characters aren't aware of it and it just gets so muddled so quickly if you can't establish what your rules are. And if they're so loose, then uh, what's the point in this character thinking in the way that he does? Thinking that it's real himself. Because if you're going to do that, just keep to those boundaries. Whereas they've just gone all out. And I think the other thing, like going back to the... I was mentioning Robert Zemeckis. I feel with the whole Whiskers character and everything else, I feel like they're trying to ride on the back of the success of Who Framed Roger yeah, Rabbit as well. It. And obviously, the, the most obvious thing is that Whiskers mm-hmm. character, who's obviously a reference to that. And even the Bogart thing as well feels very Who Framed Roger Rabbit-esque in the fact you've got this black and white character in this colour scene. I've always thought, is that a reference to Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid? Maybe, but... Because that all... uses very... Similar methods yeah. in terms of uh, like yeah, Steve Martin sharing the screen with Humphrey Bogart and yeah, whatnot. Yeah, yeah. But again, that seems like such a, a stretch of a reference to make. I mean, there are quite a few stretch references in this film. But that's the problem that I have with it is that Jack Slater, what is it, Jack Slater four or five? Four. Jack yeah. Slater four doesn't feel like a film to me. It doesn't feel like no, its own no. film because I can't imagine going to see Jack Slater four and then suddenly having a cartoon character cat turn up in this film. That's why, again, this whole police station section feels like a place that exists outside of the film mm. itself. Because otherwise, the scenes outside of the police station feel more like what Jack Slater four should be. But then, having said that, in the police station there are some nice bits in it, like where you get your proper police station cliches, uh, and then you have your your Frank McRae scene, which is great. Oh, I love. Uh, but- Love then that you, scene. But then again, it, yeah, so it epitomizes everything that's good and, and not so. And, I think there are even robots about. there as well. Yeah, yeah it's like, just so sp- weird. Space robots. Yeah. So strange. Whereas you would think, oh, this is just the LA police station. Yeah. But it's big. Yeah, yeah. Fancy. That's it. It should be the LA police station, big and fancy, and but got, really played up. And in you're a- playing up all these cliches. Yeah, play up the cliches. Yeah. But all these other movie character tropes. Get rid of him. Yeah. It's not needed. It's come from Arnold Schwarzenegger, hasn't it? It's well, I, I, I want to have a cartoon cat. Yeah, I want to have a cartoon cat. I want to get my friend Robert Patrick in this film. <laughs> uh, my other friend Sharon Stone in this film. Uh, I would like to see uh, Humphrey Bogart there because I, 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 I would like to think of myself as a Humphrey Bogart kind of figure because those are the films I grew up watching. You can play out in your head what he's thinking is. I remember watching an interview with um, Arnold Schwarzenegger on The Big Breakfast Show which is a breakfast TV show that used to be on over here in the UK. It was just before the release of Jingle All The Way, and they kept on asking him questions about like why he had made Jingle All The Way, mm. which uh, is a question that takes on a whole other meaning when you ask it after the film came out. <laughs> but uh, so Before the film came out, they asked him, so why have you made Jingle All The Way? And he's like, I want to make a family film. I want to make a comedy. And it, that's pretty much what he keeps saying. And it struck me as well that those are the type of films that Arnie really likes. Those are the films that he wants to make. He mm. wants. He fancies himself as somebody who has comedy chops. <laughs> in many ways, he is. But I don't know. It doesn't work in this film. I have a feeling that in that pursuit of making it a family film, they've kind of skewered what the film actually was in the first yeah, place. Yeah. They've just kind of tried shoehorning all these family-friendly tropes and cliches of what was popular at the time into this film, like I say, that has Sharon Stone's character from Basic Instinct, has the T-1000 in. It becomes like there is no other film out of that time or before that time or even after that resembles Jack Slater yeah and so they, they end up with this film that ends up being a parody of no film that exists 
and that's a problem. Well, the thing that's the other thing that really dates it because then it ended up just being a parody of early '90s cinema. Yeah, and it doesn't transcend its period, which in a film of this nature it should do. It, yeah. it, it has all the ability to just be more general in in that sense. Just before I continue, though, again, a positive I want to say is I do think the downfall of the film actually probably began with Arnold Schwarzenegger signing on to be in it. Mm-hmm. But also, I really like Arnold Schwarzenegger in this film. I yeah, think yeah. he sells it well. And I, I think perhaps if he had a touch less creative control, which is an impossible ask, considering <laughs> just what a big name he was at yeah. that time in his career. But for what he does in this film, he does it really well. He's not afraid to play himself up in any manner of ways. Yeah, And he seems to be having a lot of fun with a script that really doesn't know what it wants to be. Yeah, yeah. Even in the like the premiere scenes, all the people that are in in the premiere are all his friends. Yeah. And there's so many references to Planet Hollywood, which again dates the film so badly because we know that all that fell apart. Yeah. And they none of those people own Planet Hollywood yeah. anymore. And it's just like, it's a bit, it gets a bit cringy. Mm-hmm. When you get to that stage and it's just like, oh, we've gone way too far with all this kind of stuff. This this is where meta can go bad. Yeah. Because it often does when you try and do meta because it ends up just being um, blowing smoke up your own ass sort of stuff. Yeah. You're kind of self-advertising. And, and again, like I've seen many, many films that are trying to do this sort of meta thing and fail badly because it's a tightrope yeah. of what's crap and what's good. See, I actually like the idea of Arnold Schwarzenegger, the actor meeting Jack Slater, the yeah, character yeah. played by Arnold Schwarzenegger. I do like that. I think the problem with the planet hollywood meta stuff is that they have their cake and eat it too yeah it's all in the way that's played because he's mentioning planet hollywood and that's part of the joke is that he's always mentioning planet hollywood yeah, but at the but same like, time you're advertising but at planet the same hollywood. time you're just yeah. this is just this joke purely exists to advertise planet hollywood yeah but i do like the idea of them meeting up i, I like because if like they'd the done it which, as a yeah. as a say a fictional restaurant chain or something else yeah. that wasn't actually real it probably would have worked better because it was actually something that was real it was kind of oh are they actually trying to do some product placement here yeah yeah it's kind of weird but yeah on the other hand, yeah, he is great at playing it straight, not knowing that he's in this film. Yeah. He's really good at that. And he's really good when he realises that he can't do these things when he's in the real world. Apart from when it gets too obvious, where he gets a little bit weepy about who he is and his place in the world. But I, I like moments, like, for instance, when he's hearing classical music for the first time as well. And he's mm. like, didn't know I like this and I like it now. It's kind of for the first time in the real world, there's nobody writing what he's saying or doing. Yeah. And he gets to be his own person mm. for just a moment in time it's like yeah i like that that works i mean it may feel like it comes from a different film but i like the point i just wish they had more fun with the idea that there was nobody writing what he was doing now yeah yeah you know if they wanted to go to pursue this whole idea of the real world being an act in and of itself that they pull the characters into they needed to really explore it further and really have fun with the idea of like Maybe Jack Slater, the character, completely changes in the real world because, like I say, there's not, he's not bound by the words on a page anymore. He gets to be his yeah. own person. Uh, instead, they use that as an excuse for him to just mope about for a bit. Yeah, I think, again, like the other problem is that they have this big, long scene in the, in the middle of the film where you, the character almost becomes like 
self-aware of his own existence, which shouldn't happen. Yeah, yeah. In it the happens film, far it too soon happen. in the whole film. Yeah. Anyway, you should only have those moments when he's in the real world. Yeah, and it stops the film dead. And again, like you were saying, the film does have fun at certain moments, and those are the moments, the bits that work best. But the film doesn't have enough fun. Yeah, with a concept like this, it should be just fun wall to wall bouncing off yeah, the wall. Yeah, absolutely. Shit. Yeah, and it just isn't enough. Mm-hmm. It gets too serious at certain times. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you can have stakes that add up towards the end, but I feel like in other parts of the film, it just gets far too serious. Mm-hmm. And again, it does get too specific with some things as well. Like we were saying, there's the whole running gag with F. Murray Abraham's character, which may have worked at the time, but like it's one of these jokes now that unless you've seen that a particular film, yeah, unless you've seen it's going to fall yeah, flat it's... so badly. And they've just not thought about how's this film going to play even months down the line, yeah, really. Yeah. And also, like it doesn't even work for that character because I just can't imagine that character of seeing a film yeah. like Amadeus if he's into these kind of films. It's just like a, it's an obvious writer. Yeah, yeah. Joke. I have a feeling it's like, we've got F. Money Abraham. Let's make some Amadeus jokes. <laughs> yeah. For exactly. some weird reason. Yeah. It's just strange. I can't imagine there's much crossover audience as well. To be honest, it'd be one of those things. I mean, it'd be better to make a Scarface joke than an Amadeus joke. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I don't know. It's yeah. just. Yeah, that's And also, what, yeah, it, it ties into the, the whole gang thing that they're lampooning it makes anyway. A lot more sense. Because it's basically a ripoff of Scarface slash godfather yeah and i love all that stuff yeah I, I, I love the actual plot of the story and you could tell at one point there's a script somewhere that nailed it i think shane black was the one that had a lot more fun writing the actual jack slater film itself yeah i know when he speaks of his scripts he speaks of him having a lot of fun in the jack slater world coming up with the jack slater story with mm. all its cliches and stuff like that that danny could comment on and when he did eventually see the film he felt like a lot of that was lost. Mm. Uh, and there are times in this film when that really shines through. I love all the stuff about Leo the Fart and stuff like <laughs> that. Like, it's great. And him being full of toxic gas as yeah. well. But then kind of ending up on this road between two separate films, one of the reasons is apparently, according to John McTernan, was that he had a, a series of producers, a series of exec producers that were saying, one side was saying that they wanted the film to be more serious and one side was saying we need this film to be more fun. So he was constantly being pulled in every direction about what this yeah. film was going to be. And that really shows, and especially because the production time doesn't give him enough time to step back and really say, all right, this is what the film needs to be. You can really tell on a scene by scene level the information that he's being fed at that time. Yeah. Is this a serious scene or is it a funny scene? Mm. Is this a serious moment? Is it a funny moment? It kind of goes through that all the way through. And it's a shame as well because when we get into the real world at the end, and again, this is where the film actually falls apart for me. And and the reason is, like we said, they don't do enough. They've set up this whole idea of this magic ticket where you can take characters in and out of films. You yourself can go in and out of films. That's a great premise for this type of film. It's, mm-hmm. I really think there's a great idea there. It's a solid gold idea, especially for film lovers like ourselves that love to see genres kind of tackled and tore apart and lovingly put back together again. And um, in the real world, they don't actually do anything useful with that. The only character that they actually bring out of a film is Death, played by Ian McKellen, who's from The Seventh Seal, which I'm sure all family-friendly audiences are aware of and have seen many times over. <laughs> they had a great idea. They flirt with it as well. 
Charles Dance does this whole monologue about him bringing all these manner of villains out of the big screen. Why the fuck didn't they just do that? That was a great idea. Apparently it was in one draft. It was in a couple of drafts. It was one of those things in the article that basically says the whole set piece at the end with all different iconic villains coming out and doing battle was there. And then for some weird reason it wasn't. I'd imagine due to either cost rights or whatever else going on, but... It just feels like such a missed opportunity to explore. Like this, that could have been your your big finale. This, and why they didn't push for it? I don't. This I don't film get it. shouldn't have been made without that finale. No, no, considering the setup, it's not good enough to just have a character mention it as being his intention. That's something that needs to be done. Of uh, our characters racing against time to reach the cinema screen in which he has came out yeah. of from the theater that's about to be knocked down. Yeah, to show and to show while, your cards and then not yeah. follow throughs. And all the while they've got to evade all of these classic movie villains mm-hmm. that our main character has brought into the real world to yep. chase down Jack Slater. So suddenly he's not taking on other action film villains. He's taking on all villains from yeah. all films. That's a great idea. It's just, it's right there in your face. And without it, they shouldn't have made this film. And then they replace it with like, yeah, the premiere's kind of okay, but yeah, then it's a bit self-serving and mm-hmm. it's a bit cringy and dated. And then, yeah, the actual climax of the film is so flat mm-hmm. and um, far too serious and not cinematic enough for a film of this type that's been so over the top to have a climax that's so subdued is bizarre it's weird i think throughout this entire podcast we have spent most of the time talking about this final act yeah this real world final act ending and i think that's really telling about this film because there is much of it that does work oh yeah there's much of it earlier on that does work and it's mainly all in that jack slater world i think it's well acted i think it's well cast for the most part there are scenes in it that I really like. I love, for instance, when Charles Dance's character... I forgot his name. What's his name? Mr. Benedict. Mr. Benedict, yeah. When Mr. Benedict becomes aware that he's actually in a film, he starts to monologue. Mm. He starts actually talking to the audience. That's how aware he is. And uh, I even like that there's almost like a filming error at that point where we see the camera reflected across the room. It's yeah. like, is that, yeah. is that done on purpose? Because this is the moment to do that. Yeah. To suddenly make the audience aware of the camera. Yeah, and they could have had more fun with that. Like I said, they could have had bits where you could see the crew in the reflection and you could have the booming shot. Yeah. You could have some film equipment off mm-hmm. the side that hasn't been rubbed out. Or yeah. You could have had so much fun with it and they, yeah, they just don't do it. And I think maybe, like again, the pressures they had making the film prevented them from having that fun because they weren't having that fun on set yeah because of all these problems like this is the film that's been hampered by the fact that the atmosphere on set was pretty bad yeah which is not the kind of thing you want for a film like this mm-hmm. and again there's so many great moments that we can mention but because they all culminate in this very flat ending that's kind of all you can think about that all this is adding up to this yeah and it could have been so much more because again, all the stuff at the beginning of the Jack Slater fourth segment is really good. I love all of you know Frank, the first second cousin. Oh my yeah, favorite it's second great. Cousin. Yeah, which is the uh, final appearance of Art Carney, whose um, final line is "I'm out of here." Although I think didn't just retire because I didn't actually die for quite some time. No, no, I think he just retired. Because <laughs> his... when I read it, I was like, "Oh my god, he must have died!" Like, and, oh no, he died like 15 years later. <laughs> okay, it's not that severe. Yeah, um, must have just like no, I don't. Yeah, do this he anymore. died in that explosion. <laughs> 
But uh, yeah, and there's things like that. I love the fact that those two cops buy it. Mm-hmm. There's so many great moments. I love the big moon. Yeah. The whole references to the daughter, this being her first movie role. And yeah, there's so many great little things like that. But again, yeah, the big thing that holds this together doesn't work. Yeah. And that's the real shame of this film. It is so close. It's so there. It's within grabbing distance. I mean, I, I do enjoy this film. I do think it falls more on a positive side than it does a negative. I think it does more right than wrong. But it could be something genuinely more than the sum of its parts, I guess. Yeah. If only, the, I guess, the studio had reached out and grabbed it. Really grabbed hold of what they wanted the film to be. Because it's right there. I think it, for me as well, I think it was just their arrogance in thinking that they had that particular summer in the bag. Yeah. Again, it goes on in the article as well. Because Spielberg's previous film had been Hook and that had been a bit of a dud, they just completely underestimated what Jurassic Park would become. Mm-hmm. And that kind of hubris basically made this film fail in every area because they weren't really keeping the finger on the pulse of what was happening. Yeah. Then you get, shit, this is really cool film over here. We better just like make sure this is good as well. Yeah. Uh, whereas they were like, no, this is going to fucking, we got our sorts now. Fuck. You know? Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're, they, we could put any old shit and they'd buy it sort of mm-hmm. thing. And it just, I just feel like there's too many people causing this to be not what it should be that you can't really lay the blame on anyone really. It's no. Like, yeah. a lot of different things happening which obviously it does happen because that's that's film yeah that's of course film it does, business yeah. but it's a shame that it happened to this particular film and i think this is also another reason why when you read any screenwriting book any film like this where it particularly like directly references like y- y- the industry itself it's usually a big no-no because mm-hmm. it's kind of stuff like this that happens to films like this yeah they never, they never really come out that well no you get the odd exception like who frame roger rabbit but a lot of these films are yeah like meta and all that kind of stuff they're not liked by people who read them and then also like the studios get very sort of funny around them yeah because at the end of the day would they really want to get made fun of in that way i think of films that are like it in a way are well one a completely different genre is scream and the other is hot fuzz and the things that they do different which make it work is that it's not literally about somebody watching a film it's about people that are aware of films living those films yeah i think the other thing as well with with those kind of films they are made on a much much smaller budget oh yeah so they can get away they've got much more sort of control more centrified control over what happens whereas this is you're trying to make that kind of film but in a uh, Mm -hmm. a mega budget environment i mean this is one of the most expensive films ever made at the time yeah i also think as well that both those films regardless of what was craven and made that those were two films that were being made from people on the outside looking in Mm. because at that point in time i know wes craven was like the master of the slasher film for a while he Mm. created freddy krueger but by the time that he made scream he was on the outside of that Mm. circle looking in saying what slasher films become and with edgar wright he's outside of the action circle looking in commenting on these films everybody who made last action hero were making those films at that time yeah and we're surrounded by that mm. it's like you, you don't have that outside perspective because i think another one is um cabin in the woods yes it has that kind absolutely of thing yeah where, it does completely and that that works because it, it makes fun of all those kind of things and yeah. again it's because it's, it's made by first time people slash people who are kind of in the outside yeah it, it does work for that okay so now that the bullets have stopped and our bad impressions are thankfully over with it's time for us to take a look at the stats and facts. And first up, I need to ask, was this action comedy a box office hero? We have the box office numbers. Okay, so first today, we're doing the numbers, which is then a, a break of tradition. Yes. I thought I would mix things up a little bit. <laughs> Swirl it around. 
Okay, so just to put it in perspective, uh, this film was made for $85 million, of which $15 million was Arnold Schwarzenegger's salary. Wow. I mean, that's quite a lot. Well, that does take into account as well all the money that they had spent developing the film. Yeah, they probably spent at least a good five to ten million on the script. Yeah, I'd say closer to the ten, really. Yeah, they yeah. They spent $350,000 buying it. William Goldman got a million, and there were several other script writers. Shane mm-hmm. Black would have been, he would have had a big fee, I imagine, mm-hmm. at that time. Yeah, I imagine there's a few million been pumped into that script. Yeah. So putting all that into perspective, its domestic gross was $50 million. Not acceptable. No. For an Arnold Schwarzenegger starring film at this time, no way. I mean, International obviously fared a bit better. It made $87 million, So even in domestic versus foreign, obviously usually see at this time the domestic being a lot higher than the foreign. But yeah. this actually is the complete the other way around. Which Double if not triple. Quite rare right? at yeah. the time, I think, really, for American film. Yeah. So yeah, overall it makes a worldwide gross of just over $137 million. Yeah, now if I remember rightly as well, this film made a loss of $25 million on its release, which I imagine it might have made up since in the years that followed. So I imagine it's not that big of a miss for them, but that at the time to write off $25 million on an Arnold Schwarzenegger starring film directed by John McTiernan. Mm. And they did spend an awful lot of money advertising, and there's a lot of oh, and, that, and yeah, that doesn't like that. take into account. So there's, any there's of the probably other money that was lost elsewhere as well. So I imagine it's double the budget if you include. Oh yeah, advertising. I mean, I would say this: the early '90s was a period where, where movie marketing really started to gear up. Yeah, things started had to a change, lot of tie-ins yeah. and things, and yeah, this is one of those ones that really got tied into. A lot of stuff, but yeah, it didn't take off. I know in the article they describe at last action hero toys sticking to the shelves. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think one of the reasons they said why is because Arnold Schwarzenegger insisted that they would not have any weapons on them. Yeah. He wouldn't have any guns, which is strange considering what would the Arnold Schwarzenegger action figure be able to do then? If it wouldn't have any weapons on it. You've basically just got a mini Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> yeah. In a leather coat and red t-shirt and yeah. jeans. It's like, brilliant. Cool. Where's my attack helicopter? <laughs> uh, I didn't want that because I didn't want that for the kiddies. Look at me. I'm going shopping. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a film I'd like to see. Arnold Schwarzenegger goes shopping. I don't, I don't understand what a kid could do, or like what they could pretend to do with an Arnold Schwarzenegger figure of him just in his casual clothes. Oh, I don't know. So, its opening weekend, it made uh, 15 million, yeah. which is pretty terrible when you think that the week before, I think Jurassic Park made about 46 million. Wow. Opening yeah. weekend. And again, even when we go into the figures in a minute, you'll see what it made in its second week. Because mm-hmm. the other reason this film tanked so hard is the fact that, yeah, we were talking about Jurassic Park before. Jurassic Park was released the week before, and they were so arrogant with this film, they didn't push the release date back any further to either allow any more time for post or just to give it a little bit of breathing space in between the two films. Yeah. And they just sort of stuck to their guns and said, nope, it's been released on this date because we agreed to it many, many, many months ago. And uh, this is one that's one of the biggest things that really killed this film because people weren't mad for Jurassic Park, as we all know. And, yeah. And, you know, it's still going on today. People are calling fucking Jurassic World uh, Jurassic World 2, which really gets my wick. Um, <laughs> but... Yeah, this film just got completely buried. Yeah, it did. So when you look at the week, it opened to number two. 
which mm-hmm. is never a good sign. So you've got Jurassic Park at number one. In its second week, it made $38.5 million, and that's only an 18% drop-off from the previous week. It's very rarely seen today, yeah. that kind of drop-off. Yeah. Also, you have to know that the budget for Jurassic Park was $63 million, so that's a full $20 million lower than yeah. Last Action Hero. Which, considering the kind of film it is versus Last Action Hero, way more money well spent on Jurassic Park than this one. I mean, considering, like, what you're actually seeing on the screen. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, Last Action Hero with 15 uh, at number two. And then directly below that, you've got Cliffhanger. It was in its fourth week, still making $5.5 million with only a 25% drop-off. So you can see the kind of bedfellows it's got. It's just not having a good start Which is one of the great Rennie Harlan films. Mm Mm-hmm. Another film that's kind of been forgotten, but I, I did watch fairly recently and quite liked. Uh, What's Love Got to Do With It? The Tina Turner Oh, I've not, yeah, I've not seen that film. That actually was in its second week and had a 196% upturn. Oh, wow. M- so it must have opened very small and then Yeah, because it made about $3.5 million. So it must have gone wide that week or something. Made in America? Is that Eddie Murphy? No, it's Coming to America. Coming to... Oh, I don't know what Made in America. I don't know Made in America, America. no. Uh, that was at number five. Guilty as Sin. Nope. Nope. Dave. Oh, Dave. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, this this is one of the ones for us uh, of our generation. There was another film that opened the same day as Last Action Hero, and that was Once Upon a Forest. Once Upon a Forest? Yeah. Do you not know that one? No, I don't know uh, Once Upon a Forest. The, the Hanna-Barbera ecological cartoon starring Michael Crawford as a badger. Ooh, I might have seen that, actually. Yeah. It's uh, triggering some memories yeah. in the back of my mind. I, 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 yeah. I, I remember having it on video. Yeah, I think I might have seen it. Menace to society again a film that i thought was a sequel to a menace one and then uh, life with mikey at number 10 i don't know. i don't know there's a few films there that i don't know of but i imagine that they were all overshadowed by the behemoth that was jurassic park at the end of the day i mean the competition's not that strong below those first three really but yeah because you've got jurassic park in that it's just completely swamped everything else yeah that's around it and like I said this is just for ticket price inflation these are all Arnold Schwarzenegger's like top 14 films and that's the domestic gross as well isn't it yeah and yeah last action hero is number 13 on the list the only one behind it is the Terminator and that's just because of obviously the time that it was made and the kind of rating that it had and also the fact that it cost in Arnold Schwarzenegger's words the same price as the trailer for the second film yeah so uh, (laughs) no one's losing any money on the Terminator but everyone's losing a lot of money on Last Action Hero yeah and if you put it into perspective as to how bad this was like what you would think of as Arnold Schwarzenegger's like stinkers like End of Days and even stuff like Eraser both films which I enjoy (laughs) and obviously Batman and Robin as well and even like stuff like Terminator 3 mm-hmm. way way higher than that yeah well, well it really puts into perspective I think the other thing as well that puts into perspective is the fact that the film adjusted for inflation made a hundred and four million now if we consider that it actually made 55 when it's unadjusted if we double the budget in the same way you get an idea of 85 plus 85 well, you get a 170 million yeah. dollar budget mm. we start to realize then that actually a hundred million dollars for something that has a hundred and seventy million dollar budget isn't that good no anyway moving on i mean so <laughs> that was pretty brutal for last action hero at the box office i wonder if it fared any better with the critics I have the Rotten Tomatoes score here, and it has a very healthy Rotten Tomatoes score of 37%. Ooh. Yeah, and an average rating of 4.8 out of 10. Uh, that's after 43 reviews, and the critics' consensus is that Last Action Hero has most of the right ingredients for a big-budget action spoof. 
but its scattershot tone and uneven structure only add up to a confused, chaotic mess. That is absolutely bang on, in my yep. opinion. Yep. And only uh, 46% of the audience actually liked it, according to its audience score. It has an average rating there of 2.7 out of 5. Roger Ebert was uh, somewhat positive about this film. He gave it 2.5 out of 4. And he says, For all its sensational stunts and flashes of wit, Last Action Hero plays more like a bright idea than like a movie that was thought through. <laughs> it doesn't evoke the mystery of the barrier between audience and the screen the way Woody Allen did, and a lot of the time it simply seems to be standing around commenting on itself. Maybe younger viewers around the age of its young hero will identify with it, but I was disappointed. I mean, I, I do agree with Roger, but I, do, I don't think they make enough yeah. of that world, especially once they jump into the real world. They kind of just leave the cinema behind. Yeah, and that's the Purple Rose of Cairo that he's referencing as to the yeah. Woody Allen film, which is what the original writers were doing. They were said they were doing an anti-Purple Rose of Cairo because that's about a film character that comes out into the real world and they basically want to do the opposite. Oh, yeah, yeah. As for Empire, um, I have a review here from Tom Hibbert who gave the film three out of five. And he says, Last Action Hero is a film that wants to have its candy and eat it too. For while it sends up action movies, its many lavish blowing up scenes and its displays of splendid weaponry are as glossy and numbing as anything you're likely to get in a genuine actioner. Having said all that, there are some not unamusing moments here, like when Jack Slater's life is saved by a cartoon cat called Whiskers, who works at the same fictional precinct. Or like when Danny, attempting to convince Jack that he's uh, living in a movie, takes him into a video shop only to come across a display for Terminator 2 starring Sylvester Stallone. I mean, with this review, I think um, I actually disagree with the point about, especially about the, um, the cartoon cat. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I don't like it when this film goes too far out of its way to comment on the fact that it's a film, like going to the video shop. Because mm. the point I always come back to is that's not what these characters would be doing in the film. That's not what the writers would be making them do. No, no. You know, like it should at least adhere to some semblance of a story, of a film story kind of thing. I think it opens the door then as well to the idea that there are films within films, you know, and, and that kind of thing. It, it all becomes a bit muddled about what it's trying to yeah, say. Yeah, it just it? becomes a bit chaotic. Yeah, and that just becomes a bit wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Yeah. And uh, finally, the IMDb score for this film is 6.2 out of 10. It's, it's Again, an IMDb score of about 6 out of 10 is what I would give it because I do think it's a very enjoyable film that's uh, just utterly confused about what it wants to be. So, uh, that leaves me to ask the two questions that I ask at the end of every episode of Best Forgotten Movies. And first up, are you any closer to understanding why Last Action Hero has been forgotten? I mean, it was uh, too many cooks. Yeah. It wasn't given enough time when it came to the important bits. Yeah. Yeah, obviously got swamped by Jurassic Park, so really bad timing and hubris slash arrogance of studio. And again, the, the main thing is it doesn't really know what it is about and who it's for. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with you on all of the points there. And, uh, like, uh, again, we can't hammer home more as well just how ruthless this uh, production period was for everybody involved. I mean, it was so tight that they could have been filming pieces of the film at its own premiere. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's how tight it is. Mm. And I guess the final question is, is The Last Action Hero one of the best of the forgotten movies, or should it simply remain best forgotten? I'm going to go first, I guess. Um, I don't know if this is one that we will have a disagreement on, but we've been really quite negative about this film, but I have to confess that it's one that 
I still enjoy watching. I do think it has clever moments. I do think it has wit. I just think it could be more than it is. And the fixes are so obvious. So I don't think it's one of those ones that I want to be too negative about and say, oh, it's uh, it should definitely remain best forgotten because I do think even for all its flaws, they're not flaws that have come out of cynicism. People have been trying on this film and when it works, it works well. Yeah, and it does it's, it's, entertain. It's, it's a misguided film rather than yeah. anything else. No, no, I think I, I would say that would be the case. I mean, I still enjoy it, but it's one of those films that you can go, oh, this is a really great idea. This could have been so much better than yeah. it actually is. Yeah. And it really is, in certain points, it really catches fire, and then at other points, it's like, oh, no, dwelling yeah. on this, or we don't need this in this bit, it's, or why is that there? Mm-hmm. The core part of it is fine and it's really, really good, and then there's all these other things that are basically disrupt it or make it totally jumbled. And mm-hmm. But it's, at the same time, it's still enjoyable to watch. It's not an unwatchable film. It's just one of those films that goes, ah, could have been better. Yeah, it's a close but no cigar film. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to say, again, like the film itself, it toes the line between best forgotten and best of the forgotten but since um i enjoy this film it did a lot for me in my mm-hmm. childhood as well entertained me a lot i got a lot of wear out of it on the vhs i'm going to say it's a uh, best of the forgotten movie uh, films but only just really yeah i'd say so i think also the thing that sort of trips over that line is because it is in a very unique category there's not that many films that you can say, I'll like it. Yeah. It's literally like a one-off. It is, yeah. And it's a shame that it did get kind of slightly fucked up because it's one of those films that you can only really make a couple of times. It's not yeah. one of those films that you can remake time and time again mm-hmm. like a lot of films are. You are right. It is definitely unique in its own way. There are no other films that I really like it, especially one that's been made by the same people that the film is parodying. Yeah. It's a real oddity. It's a real curiosity in that way. And uh, yeah, so in, in, I mean, even in that way, I think it, it definitely deserves to be remembered. It definitely mm. deserves to be watched and uh, thought about. Yeah. And that's all we have time for on this week's episode of Best Forgotten Movies. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at B4 Movies. So please do get in touch with suggestions for possible episodes. And if you have the time to help us continue grow our fan base, please rate and subscribe to our podcast page found in the iTunes Store. And join us next week when we'll be taking on a bomb so big, it needs its own planet. That's right, kids. We're taking on Don Bluth's career-ending dud that is Titan AE. But until then, it's bye from myself and hasta la vista, baby. From Andy. I'll be back. I bet you didn't think I was going to say that, did you? (laughs) I need a Turbo Man toy. Thanks for listening.